I want to share this morning a statement that Jesus made to a person who needed to hear these words and be empowered by his grace. And the words were, go and sin no more. It almost sounds like, just start behaving yourself. But that's not what he was saying. He was saying, you can now live from a different place as a person that's been forgiven. And of course he was talking about that woman that was caught in adultery. So this is really a beautiful encouragement of the words of Jesus speaking about the power of grace over sin. It could have been another title. But today I want to talk about sin and how Jesus told a person to go and sin no more and how and why can you say that to someone? What allows that statement to be made? Now the answer goes back to how and when humanity lost its innocence when sin first began and how humanity can regain its innocence through the forgiveness and mercy of God through Jesus. I will discuss the fuller meaning of innocence in a few moments, but I'd like to read the scripture now in John 8, verse 1. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, in the dirt. Mind you, this is in the temple, outside the temple proper, in the yard there, the courtyard. So as he was writing, they continued to ask him. And he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard him say this, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The scribes and Pharisees were trying to catch Jesus out. If he had said, Yes, stoner, they would have said, well, why have you stopped preaching forgiveness and mercy? That's all you've been going on about. And if he said, don't stone her, they would say, you're preaching against the law of Moses. Jesus knew they had corrupt motives for their questions. So he began writing with his finger in the dirt and they kept demanding an answer, determined to catch him out in some incorrect ruling of the sacred law. Now the Bible does not say what Jesus was writing. Some say he was writing the Ten Commandments and the law. 
but I'm inclined to think that he was perhaps trying to catch them out with a deeper aspect of personal sin, which is what the conscience deals with, not with the aspect of general sin, which is what the law and the commandments deal with. They had all of that written down and in their head, but he wanted to know what was in their hearts. So as they pressed him further, he stood up and said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw that first stone. So in saying that, he was saying to them, look, you can stone her if you wish. So he wasn't compromising the law, but he put a condition upon the stoning. And that was whoever had a clear conscience about their own sinfulness, they were qualified to judge her sin. He was challenging them to judge themselves. That's a difficult thing to do, but it's the only thing to do, if we're going to be honest, before we judge. They had been avoiding judging themselves all their lives, and they preferred to stay in the shadows of their shame and guilt by judging others instead. It's a way out to not judge yourself. And when he bent down again and continued to write in the dirt, they began to leave from the oldest to the youngest. Now it's conceivable that he wrote the names in the dirt, all of their names, and next to each one's name, the personal sin that was hidden in the darkness of their heart. And the older ones left first with their heavily laden burdens of guilt and shame. And the younger ones, after that, decided to get going before the going got too tough. We'd better get out of here. So why do people cover their sin under darkness? In John's Gospel, in chapter 1, John talks about Jesus being the light and that men loved the darkness more than the light. That's because darkness hides them from the intolerable light that uncovers sin and shame and guilt, which are very painful things to bear. So people deceive themselves and don't look and hide from God and from themselves. Now, there are devious ways that darkness covers shame. One way is to cover the shame with virtuous performance. Look how good I am. Can I tell you how good I am? Would you like to watch me perform good things? Another tactic is to falsely claim the role of a victim and then shame others as perpetrators. It's a really good cover, that one. Another way is to uncover somebody else's sin and heap shame and guilt onto them, which is what these accusers were doing, and Jesus caught them at it. Now, Jesus came to do more than just forgive us our sins. He came to help us turn from sin and turn towards the light and the love of God. That's called repentance. And to live above sin by living in a lovely family relationship with God and for God, where we're not only forgiven from sin, but we're mercifully covered from shame so that we can go and sin no more. When there's a, a loving relationship, there is a desire to please that other person. It's a relational thing. Mercy allows light to operate. If somebody is merciful to our mistakes, then we're willing to be ourselves, our true selves, warts and all, in their presence. And 
things begin to change because everybody wants to be the best person they can be, but when they're in the light, God's work of grace and transformation is allowed to operate. Now, the first sin that was ever committed caused Adam and Eve to run and hide into the shadows from their shame and guilt. Their sin was their violation of trust in that divine family relationship where you are as you are with people that love you. But they ran to hide from their shame and guilt. Now that violation of trust in God, which was what they committed, they attempted to not trust God. That violation set the pattern for all sin that we commit as human beings. It's the overriding sin of not trusting God. Sin is the activation of separation from God, running away from God, denying that he exists. And that's the sin of unbelief. That's the sin whereby humanity misses the mark. That sin drives humanity into isolation from God isolation from other people and within their innermost self, isolation from who they really are. People are then lost. That's why when John spoke in chapter 16 and said that the Spirit of God has been sent into the world to convince the world of sin because they don't believe. It was the unbelief they don't trust. Now I said that I'd mention that word innocence because Adam and Eve lost their innocence and God wants us to regain our innocence. So Adam and Eve were completely innocent human beings. But their innocence was untested until Satan tempted them into not trusting God, the Heavenly Father. As created human beings, they could be tempted. And they could choose to sin because they were of a lower order of being than God, who was uncreated being. And the Bible is clear that God cannot be tempted. It says that in James chapter 1, verse 13. So anything lower than God, any creature lower than God, has the ability to separate from God, choose themselves, and not believe and not trust. That's sin. So they failed the test, they sinned, and the violation of the relationship corrupted their human spirit, the sense of who they were, and they lost their innocence. The word for innocent is innocere, a Latin word that means to not harm. In means not, nocere means harm. So it means to not harm, and it also means not being harmed. People that get harmed and take that harm on board end up harming others. Adam and Eve had now been harmed by Satan, by darkness, and they could now cause harm to themselves and to others. And that's what they did. I'd like to now speak about the human seed when that happened, there was a prophetic word that God spoke about what would happen to their seed that now had the DNA 
of some kind of flaw of selfishness and separation. So Adam and Eve, potentially, they had seed to pass on. They had no human parents, so they, they didn't come from a seed. They were created. That's why they were innocent. There was no corrupt seed, DNA, sin seed, that they had as human beings. There was no other human that had passed on a seed of sin. They were created beings. And the seed in them didn't actively operate until it was passed on by Adam and Eve to other generations. DNA then began to do its thing spiritually. So this is what God said to Satan after he had tempted Adam and Eve into sinning. He said to him, there would be enmity and conflict between the seed of his darkness, that's a spiritual thing, and the spiritual seed of all humanity. So a spiritual darkness got into the human spirit and corrupted the seed that was going to be passed on. And they're God's words. God said there's going to be a seed problem here. That's in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14. And this spiritual conflict between darkness and the flawed seed of humanity would lead to ongoing temptation and sin and shame and guilt and the fragmentation of the human soul for the rest of time upon the earth. We're stuck with it. That's where sin came from. That's how it gets transferred. Now their damaged human seed began to live on in their offspring, spiritually reproduce, and it continues to do so. Well, what do we do about getting our innocence back? Well, Jesus was the only other completely innocent being to live upon the earth. He was a human being. Since Adam and Eve, when they lost their innocence, the next episode of innocence was Jesus. But he was born from a seed. How did that happen? That seed was perfect and incorrupt. Jesus was born from above by the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. The human spirit of Jesus remained incorrupt. When he spoke to his disciples about the work of darkness, he said, Satan has no part in me. That darkness seed could never get to his incorrupt seed that came from above. The miracle birth. The supernatural birth. He was tempted, as are all human beings, but he never sinned. He never lost his innocence. He never did harm. And you might say, oh, but he received harm. He was harmed. Well, we might look and observe and say, yes, we saw him being whipped. We saw him being insulted. But Satan had no part in him. He didn't have to get into reaction to that. The only time... He ever looked like he was in reaction when he was defending his father, but never himself. His soul remained intact. He said, I just commit everything to the father and he looks after it. He wasn't damaged. 
He was never separated, you know why? He was never separated from the loving family bond with his father, whom he lived to please before himself. Now that's where Adam went wrong. He decided to stop doing that. Got tempted to not do that. That's how sin came in. When you come back to the family and live with the family and the loving patience and long-suffering of family to family that they love, then you see the work of mercy. All right, so we talked about seeds. Now I'd like to talk about trees and seeds because trees produce seeds and seeds produce trees. And there were many trees in the Garden of Eden and the two that are mentioned were the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Those two trees produced different fruit that bore different seeds. Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the effect of eating from that tree gave the human soul a distorted perception of good and evil. The soul now perceived good as being what fulfilled humanity's desires of self-interest rather than the desire to please a loving God, a family thing. And that seed has passed on to all generations. That's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We've all got it. Self-interest is good. That's what humanity tends to get drawn towards. This is good because it's good for me. The Bible speaks about those who call evil good and good evil who change darkness to light and light into darkness. That's in Isaiah chapter 5. Now the other tree was the tree of life. And that tree bears the fruit of the incorruptible seed of the word of God. That tree of life wasn't allowed to be eaten of. It was, it was protected in the garden, flaming swords. Nobody was able to get to it because God saw all this happening in eternity, of course. And he protected that tree of life until the tree of life was ready to come with a new fruit and a new seed in Jesus. Jesus is the incorruptible seed of the word of God, the Logos. And the Bible says that we are born again from that seed. In 1 Peter 1 verse 23 it says to us, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the word of God, the Logos, which lives and abides forever. That's the seed that contains eternal life. That's what eternal life is. It is that seed of incorruptible truth and life of Jesus, the tree of life. And that's why we are able to live out of the fruit of the Spirit. Not the fruit of do-gooding, in our own self-effort, but the fruit of that seed, the fruit of the Spirit of God, the fruit of the tree of life that Jesus lived and now lives through us by the Holy Spirit. Now we express that fruit in our lives through our souls. Love, joy, peace, 
long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You think, oh, I'm going to make myself do that. You can try all you like. It's better to let the seed grow. And you know what? You can ask for the seed to grow. You can say, Lord, thank you for that seed in me that's got some long-suffering and kindness in it because I'm sure getting impatient here with the behaviour of Joe over there or whatever it is. God says, yeah, that's the kind of prayer I can answer. Beautiful prayer. You ask and you'll receive. There are certain things you can ask of and receive pretty much straight away from God because it's exactly what he wants for you. Long-suffering simply means not to judge. Because God, he will do that in due course anyway. All of these things, even self-control. Say, Lord, I'd like the um, fruit of self-control. And you can be thinking behind that prayer. Because I'd like to have more willpower to be able to stop doing the things that I want to do. And God will say, no, I'm sorry, I don't want to give you more willpower. I can give you more want power. But what I can do is if you ask the question correctly, say, Lord, I'd like you to teach me how to surrender more in my own wanting of my thing. Oh, yes, I can teach you that. That ends up being called self-control. God's so generous with his gifts like that and his fruit. So we can regain that place of innocence before God as his children. We were destined for that through the activity of his grace upon our souls. So the, the loss of innocence from the first sin meant we were able to be harmed and able to do harm. But regaining our innocence again means we're now able to, instead of able to be harmed, we're able to be spiritually blessed. And instead of being able to harm, we're now able to be a spiritual blessing to others. Everything gets changed around in God's way of doing things in life. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 said, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This is our destiny, that we should be holy and innocent before him in love. That word innocence, the same word as blameless. So that's where we're destined to be. We can be part of the reversal of Adam and Eve's original sin. The sin of their violation of trust in the divine family relationship between themselves and God and themselves and one another. Wouldn't that solve all the world's problems today? If all, if all of a sudden people woke up and felt really grateful for the love of God upon them and in their souls and really wanting and desiring to show love to everybody else that they knew. It would be a different place. It's there within God's sights in one way or another and I don't know exactly what it will look like. Or that's what Jesus was sent for. You see, we are here able to reverse that. It wasn't just between them and God, it was between them and one another. We saw that. They began to blame one another. The blame game, which we all know about. Adam said to God when he was asked, what, what, what are you doing there, Adam? What, what happened? What, what have you been up to? 
He knew, but he just wanted Adam to admit it. Come out of the dark. Come on, you're with Dad now. Oh, no, I'm not. I'm with the judge and I'm scared. Now, come on, tell me. What was all that about? And Adam had a terrific answer. <laughs> he said, the woman you gave me made me do it. <laughs> so he went to the woman and he said, oh, what was all that about? And she said, well, the devil made me do it. That's been going on for generations. <laughs> that violation of trust in God set the pattern for all sin that we commit as human beings. Where our first parents lost their innocence and where we lose ours, but through the faith of Jesus in us, we regain our innocence and through our faith in Jesus, we share in his divine family life without any shame or guilt or distortion of who we are. We don't have to hide, try and pretend. Jesus can say to us, when we come into the light, he can say, you're covered. If we make a mistake, if we unintentionally cause offence, it's written, there's a clause in the, the new covenant that said, that said, I will have mercy on all of your unrighteousness. Don't even have to ask for forgiveness for it. But your sins and, and trespasses, I'll remember them no more. You talk about them to me, but those things that you didn't mean to do, just come confidently to the throne of grace and receive mercy and then obtain grace in your time of need. So mercy is built in. Now, Jesus then can say to us, when we have an experience like that, he can say, go and sin no more. We can agree with him and say, well, of course. I'll guarantee you, Lord, here I go, I'm going to sin no more. And the Lord's whispering, yes, well, and come back next time and we'll say this all again. I understand, you're going to need my mercy. On and on, but it's always there. But I love it that you see that go and sin no more, not as a condemnation or a disgruntled God saying you're not matching up, but as a beautiful encouragement. You can live above that stuff. I'm empowering you to do that. And we come back to the end of that little story. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him, and he stood up and said to a woman, Where are they? Has anyone condemned you? What he says to us is there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. Hasn't anyone condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. That lady knew in her heart that she was loved and accepted into the family of God through her brother, Jesus. And as she drew closer to that divine family life through Jesus, and she's, for the rest of her years, as time went on and the resurrection had happened, she would know more and more about what grace was all about. But here's her beginning of drawing closer to that divine family life through Jesus. She would draw more and more distant from her past life. She could now choose to go and sin no more, even while living under the law. She could make the choice because she now saw life from a different perspective. 
She was not a different person. She had an experience of the love and forgiveness of God through Jesus. He said, I haven't come to bring condemnation. It's salvation for your souls. So now, we who are under the grace of God, even more so, we can choose to go and sin no more because the Bible tells us that since Jesus rose from the dead and the Holy Spirit was given to us, sin does not rule over us. Romans 6 verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. That is the power of grace. It's not our willpower. It is being part of a family where you can walk in the light, be who you are, and grow more and more in love, more and more being loved, more and more loving, more and more being who you were created to be, and more and more enjoying life and finding peace and all the other fruit of the Spirit. If we ask and believe, in Jesus' name, amen.